Well, there was a woman who was dying, and she asked her pastor to come to the house so that they could begin to plan her service. And she had thought through it and said, these are the scriptures I wanted to be read at my service. These are the songs I would like sung. And as the pastor is writing this all down, she said, and in my casket, I want two things with me. I want my Bible in one hand, and I want a fork in the other. And uh, the pastor stopped writing for a moment. He said, I'm sorry, I, I, I thought I heard you say you wanted a fork in your hand. And she said, yes, I do. She said, you see, I've, I've grown up in the church and I've gone to dinners and fellowships all my life. And at the end of a meal, when they were clearing the table, if somebody said to me, keep your fork, honey, I said, I knew the best was to come because it meant there would be dessert. And so she said, I want you to put a fork in my hand so that if people see that, they'll, they'll want to know why is there a fork and you can tell them. And so the day of her service came, and as people were paying respects and they walked past the casket, they would all do a double take as they saw uh, a fork in her hand next to her Bible. And the pastor heard them wondering aloud, "Why, why is there a fork in her hand? And so as he got up to preach, he said, you probably noticed there was a fork in this woman's hand. And it's there because she knew Jesus Christ as her Savior. And because of that, she knows that this life, when it is over, isn't the end, but it means the best is yet to come for the believer. Because she's going to sit down at the banquet table in heaven and enjoy the feast with her Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we turn in our Bible today to Revelation chapter 2, we're going to continue looking at this letter to the church at Thyatira. And as we do, what we're going to see is that Christ tells these Christians there in that city that the best is yet to come for those who belong to him, for those who have lived for him. I invite you to pick up with me where we left off last time by looking at verse 24 of Revelation chapter 2. Jesus says, But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. And he who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. As I also have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." Now, when we looked at this letter last time, you'll recall that we saw there were some in the church of Thyatira who were succumbing to the teaching of a a woman named Jezebel. And this Jezebel, as we saw, was like her notorious Old Testament counterpart. You'll recall in the Old Testament, there was a, a woman who had married King Ahab. This Jezebel was the queen who began to turn the nation from following the true God Jehovah to, to the false gods like Baal. And this woman, as we talked about last time, was a person who was teaching uh, that it was okay to be involved in immorality and idolatry and the pagan practices there at the temples, the, the false pagan temples. And so as he's talking, as we saw last time, as he talked to those believers who were falling into this, he says, you need to, 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 to repent, to turn from this. We see here in verse 24 that not everyone was succumbing to these sins. Because he says others are standing firm for Christ. When he talks about the deep things of Satan, uh, he doesn't mention for us what those are. But the Apostle John, who was used to write this letter uh, to the church at Thyatira, was also used by God to write the letter of 1 John that we find in our Bibles. And as you read 1 John, you see that the problem in that day was Gnosticism. 
And the Greek word gnosis means knowledge. And so the Gnostics were those who claimed to have this high and enlightened knowledge, some of which they said came from participating in sin. They said by doing the things, dabbling in the sins of the world, we experience and and have a, a greater understanding of sin and therefore God's grace when we're forgiven from it. Now, the Bible combats that type of false teaching. It tells us in uh, Romans 6, 1 through 2, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? And Paul says, May it never be. How shall we who die to sin continue to live in it? Now, another way the Gnostics said you were enlightened was by dabbling in the, the dark things of Satan. Today, in our day, we would call them the occult. There are those that play with the New Age movement, with Wicca. Uh, they go to psychics to have readings. There are others that play with Ouija boards. And friends, if you're wanting to uh, experience the deep mysteries, uh, you don't have to dabble in darkness, in those counterfeit things. Rather, what God says is the way to understand deeper things and to be closer to him is to turn to him. Again, that word repentance, where we come back to God. And he says, read my word. I've revealed to you many great mysteries in the world. So read the scriptures. First Corinthians chapter two, verses seven through 10 tell us, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom, which God predestined before the ages to our glory for to us, God revealed them through the spirit for the spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. The, the word of God is filled with mind blowing mysteries. I'm afraid for some of us, they become so familiar to us, they're, they're, they're more routine. I mean, you read Philippians chapter 2, the great kenosis passage, and it speaks of the mystery of how Jesus Christ became man, how he took on flesh and blood. The incarnation is described there. And, and we sometimes just kind of go, well, that's great. I've heard it before. But stop for a moment and think what that means for God to leave his throne in heaven to come to earth. To become, the creator became part of the creation. He took on flesh and blood. And he walked this earth with us. He experienced all that we do. And the reason for that was so that he could go to the cross. So that he could give his life to be the sacrifice, the payment for the penalty of death for our sins. So that one day we could be with him in heaven. That alone should blow our minds. But often we we just pass over those things. God reveals to us so many other things in his word. In your Bible this morning, I'm, I'm sorry, in your bulletin this morning, you found this chart. And if you came in and, and did not get a bulletin and, and you want this chart, you can pick one up on the way out. Uh, on our sermon section on our website at waysidechapel.org, I always put all the slides from my sermon up there. This chart is there in a PDF form. I know many of you are going through the study of Revelation with Bible Study Fellowship. And if you would like this chart uh, to distribute to others in your groups, you're welcome to do that. Uh, The PDF is there. Just download it. You can share it with anybody that you would like. But as you look at this chart, if you've never really studied the end time events, it can become overwhelming to you. And I've actually, if I put everything on there, you wouldn't even be able to read this piece of paper. So I've, this is not uh, 100% of what God reveals for us, but I've tried to give you the big rocks. But if this is even overwhelming, let me help you out. Uh, we're here, okay? 
We're right here in what is called the church age. The the church age is the time post-crucifixion of Christ from the day of Pentecost forward, and we're waiting, anticipating an event called the rapture, which we'll talk more about in a moment where we as Christians will be uh, taken to meet the Lord in the air. But right now we're here uh, in what is called the church age. Now, before we go on to the rapture, let me back up to the cross. Again, we're not going to be able to go in depth into everything today. Uh, but what I want you to see is in the book of Daniel, there is a prophecy called the 77s of Daniel. And in about five years ago, we went through the book of Daniel. So if you want to go back and study that, the, those sermons are available. Um, but here you see the 77s of Daniel and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is predicted in that. It says in Daniel 9:26. then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. So this is speaking of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It's found as well in Isaiah 53 in verses 8 through 9, which tell us he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. I want you to notice the intricacy of the details given. If you were with us as we went through Daniel, you saw that to the very day God predicted the event called the crucifixion. This isn't one of these prophecies that are so broad anything could apply. I can tell you uh, that there's going to be a plane crash in 2016 and people will die. That doesn't make me a prophet. That's so general it means nothing. But what we find is not only the day of the crucifixion, but look at the detail of it. It says that he would be with wicked men in his death. You'll recall the Messiah was crucified with two thieves on either side. It said that he would be with a rich man in his death. Jesus was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a religious leader and a man of affluence in that day. So we're given just so intricate of a detail of the prophetic things that are happening. And so, as I said, we are now in this period where we're waiting uh, for something to happen. Now, after the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, when he was buried in the tomb, he didn't stay there. The scriptures tell us that after three days, he rose from the dead, showing that he was indeed God and that he had conquered sin and death. The scriptures tell us that he walked the earth for 40 days, showing himself to more than 500 witnesses, eyewitnesses, those like Thomas who were told, put your finger in the holes, put your hand in the the hole in my side to see. He ate fish in front of them to show he had a physical body. He proved there was a a resurrection. Uh, And then he ascended into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And the scriptures tell us that there is a time coming when he will return for us. And this is what is known as the rapture. Uh, The word rapture, some of these terms that you hear like millennium or rapture, these are Latin words. Uh, Rapturo means to be caught up. And as the theologians were setting these things we study today, they attach these Latin terms to them. And so when you want to find out where the rapture is, 1 Thessalonians 4, 14 through 17 is one place. And it tells us, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain, uh, that's Christians today, those of us here, we who are alive today and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. Some of you have loved ones like I do that have died. Those who are believers will not be left behind. This is what uh, we're reading here. 
It says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together, raptured, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now, on the chart, you see that I've labeled this the pre-tribulational rapture. We don't have time today, nor would it be profitable to debate, is this a a mid-trib, a post-trib event? Uh, Some of you may hold a different view as to when the rapture occurs, and that's okay. Uh, You can be wrong. I'm kidding. Don't write me letters. (laughs) But you see that I call it the pre-tribulational rapture. And the reason for that is the scriptures describe a seven-year period called the tribulation. Remember the 77s of Daniel? There's one seven-year period, one final week of that is left to come, and that's that seven years called the tribulation. And we as believers are going to be kept from this. That tribulation is described in many places. In Revelation chapter 6 through 19, you will study this if you go through the book. Now, when we get to the letter to the church of Philadelphia that is coming in Revelation chapter 3, this is what we're going to see in verses 10 through 11. Jesus says, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will keep you from the hour of testing, from that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to those who dwell on the earth. This is speaking of the tribulation. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. In 1 Thessalonians 1.10, we're told to wait for his son from heaven, to whom he raised from the dead. Remember, he's coming back at the rapture. And it says, what, what will happen? He rest, who rescues us from the wrath to come, the wrath, the tribulation period. Now, those that Christ is coming back for are found in Revelation 2.26, where it says, And he who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Now, that's the millennial kingdom that we're going to come to and talk a little bit more. But when it talks about authority over the nations, it is a physical reign here on the earth. And so we're going to get into depth in this in a moment, but I just want you to see this. But coming back to those who it is, that Christ will come back for, uh, you see they're called overcomers. Now, in previous sermons on this series, we've talked about who an overcomer is. And the Bible defines it for us in 1 John 5 in verses 4 through 5. It says, For whoever is born of God, that's a believer, overcomes the world. And here, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So what God is going to do is return for those who are Christians, believers in him, those who have faith. They are the overcomers. Now, if you're uh, trusting in yourself in the good works that you are doing, sometimes we think that if we're just good enough, that God will allow us into heaven when we die. And I'm jumping forward on your chart here, but you can read uh, what happens in Revelation chapter 20 and verses 11 through 15. That's called the great white throne judgment. Jesus Christ will be the judge seated on that throne. And you see that books, plural, are opened where he looks at the deeds we've done here on earth if our name is not found in the book, which is called the Lamb's Book of Life. Those who are in the book of life are believers in Jesus Christ. No Christian will be at the great white throne judgment. Only on believers. And what God says to them is, you were trusting in your works. You would not accept my death 
in your place to pay the penalty of death, so you get to pay the penalty yourself. And they received the judgment of the second death, which is called the lake of fire. As you see there in Revelation 20:15, it says all unbelievers will be sent to the lake of fire. And these are unbelievers throughout the ages. Hebrews 9:27 tells us it is appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment. So anyone who has died who did not receive Jesus Christ as their personal savior uh, will pay the penalty of the second death, eternal separation from God. So if you're here today and you're trusting in yourself, if you're trusting in how many times you go to church, how much money you give to God, how many good things you do, friends, you will not make it that way. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 gives us good news. It tells us it's not by our works. It says for by grace, by grace, you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one should boast. So if you're here today and you're trusting in yourself to get to God by your good works, I, I invite you to turn to Christ today to receive his great gift of new life. Now, what about the believer? What about the Christian? When we die, we do not go before the great white throne judgment, but we go before something called the Bema Seat. And it's called the Bema Seat because it's the Greek word bematos that is found there in 2 Corinthians 5.10. It says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. You see, sometimes people say, well, it doesn't matter how I live my life then. I'm a Christian. I'm saved. So I can sin all I want. And what God says is, no, that's not it. I mean, it's not that you lose your salvation. Uh, the scriptures tell us that some will be saved yet is smelling like fire, right? You're going to get into heaven and everything will be burned up. There will be nothing left. You see, another passage that speaks of this is 1 Corinthians three eleven through 14. It says, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That's our faith. That's the foundation. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, these are things that last, things of value, versus wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work, which he has built upon it remains, he will receive a reward. If you've ever watched the Olympics, you've seen the medal stand, the Greek games. It is called the Bema seat. This is what the Greek word Bema means. It speaks of a reward stand. And in the Olympics, what happens is those who have excelled, those who competed at the highest level, receive rewards, precious rewards, gold medals, silver medals, bronze medals. And it's the same picture for us as Christians. When we go before the Lord on our judgment day, and our judgment day happens as we die, Second Corinthians 5, 8 says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So as a believer passes from this earth into the presence of God, they go before the judgment stand, not to determine do you get in or out. God has already determined that if we've accepted the great gift of grace, our name is in the book of life. The reservation is confirmed. We are welcomed into heaven. But the question is, will we hear, well done, good and faithful servant? This is where God will look at our lives. The, the things that are passing and worthless are burned up. The things that are eternal and precious, the things done for God, last for eternity. You, you think of a gold ring. They put the, the ore into a refining fire and the dross is burned away. 
and what remains is the precious metal. And God will look at our lives and what comes out of the refining fire, so to speak, is our reward. Now, we're not given a medal to walk around and and wear. Uh, We're given what are called crown rewards. And again, we don't walk around and say, hey, my crown's bigger than yours. Uh, The book of Revelation says we cast these down before God in worship. You read about the elders around the throne and they put their their, their thrones down around the glassy sea. And this is what is being spoken of. So we as Christians will be judged, but it will be to determine the rewards that we receive. You'll remember last time we read in Revelation 2.19, Jesus Christ said, I know your deeds. And I asked you, what would God say to you about your deeds? In verse 23, he says, I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. This is the reward. Now, when we go before this Bema seat, as I said, it is not to see if we're good enough. Romans 3.10 settles that question for all of us. It says, there is an unrighteous, no, not one. So again, if you're trusting in yourself or your good works, God calls on you to turn from your sins and turn to Jesus to be your savior. And what is left to determine for us as believers is what will we receive in terms of our rewards? Now, one of the rewards we will receive is found in verse 26 of Revelation chapter 2. Jesus says, to he who overcomes and to he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Now, I told you that this speaks of the millennial kingdom. Uh, you can read the parable of the Minas in Luke chapter 19. There Jesus is speaking to the servants. And as, as he looks at how they invested the gifts that he gave to them, their time, their talents, their treasures, they face a point where the, the, the master, which represents God, comes and he says to them, he judges them. And as he looks at the one ma- uh, servant who had been fruitful, who had done his master's bidding, he says in verse 16 of Luke 19, Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in very little thing. Be in authority over ten cities. The cities are literal cities. During the millennial kingdom, Jesus Christ will return physically to the earth. Uh, there will be some who will be in authority over San Antonio, Texas. Uh, Again, we don't have time to go into the the totality of what we're looking at. I'm giving you a broad overview. And I know by now some of you are going, you lost me. You are here, Roger. Uh, That's why I've given you the chart so that you can go back and study these things on your own. But what happens is there will be a physical return of Jesus Christ to the earth. And those of us who are believers will return with him. And we will be placed in authority over cities on the earth. Uh, We will co-reign with Jesus Christ. And some of us will be given uh, cities of great importance because we have been faithful in little things in this time, and God will place us over bigger things. Others will be in authority over regions. You may be uh, not so much a mayor of a city, but a governor of of a state. And then there will be other levels of authority given. So he says, you were faithful in a little thing, be in authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, your mina master has made five minas. And he said to him, you also are to be over five cities. But to another servant who had not invested for God in what he had done, Jesus says to him in uh, Luke 19.24 and following, take the mina away from him and give it to the one who already has ten minas. And they said to him, Master, he has ten minas already. And Jesus responds, I tell you that to everyone who has shall more be given. 
But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. Now in verse 27 of Revelation 2, look at what it says. And he, this is Jesus, shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my father. These words are drawn from Psalm 2. Uh, Psalm 2 is a, is a prophetic song pointing to the time of the Messiah. And Psalm 2, 7 through 9 tells us this. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, thou art my son. Today I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt shatter them like earthenware. This is speaking again of this millennial kingdom uh, that is here on the earth. Now, I told you we get these Latin words. Uh, Mile is the Latin word for a thousand. And it's drawn from Revelation 20, verses 2 through 7, because six times in those verses we see kilioi, which is the Greek word for a thousand. Six times the word a thousand shows up. Some people say they are all millennialists. They say there is no millennial kingdom. Well, then they have to throw away Revelation 20, 2 through 7. Because six times, as you see in your Bible, you can go in there and underline a thousand, a thousand, a thousand. Because God says there will be a period of time here on the earth for a thousand literal years. This is called the millennial kingdom. And there are some of the passages you see. And this this millennial kingdom begins with the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now we talked about the rapture earlier. The second coming is different from the rapture. At the rapture, we are caught up to meet the Lord where? in the air. At the second coming of Christ, he physically returns to the earth. The second coming of Christ will not be like his first where he was born as a helpless baby in a manger. When he returns the second time physically to the earth, he will come back as a conquering king, the Lord of Lords. In Zechariah chapter 2 verses 10 through 13, we're told this, Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming, and I will dwell in your midst, physically among us, declares the Lord. And many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people, then I will dwell in your midst, and you will know that the Lord has sent me to you. And the Lord will possess Judah as his portion and the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation." It means he's left heaven again to come to earth. And where will he be? In the land of Israel, in the city of Jerusalem. You'll remember King David was promised that your descendant will sit on the Davidic throne. And in eschatology, end times prophecy, they speak of Christ occupying the Davidic throne. And this will be physically here on earth. He will be on the throne in Jerusalem, ruling physically present on the earth. Zechariah 14.4 tells us, And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem, in the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in the middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. As you read through the scriptures, you see where there will be physical changes to the geography of the earth, specifically there in Jerusalem, how the, the valleys will be uh, leveled, the mountains will come down, there will be this broad plain. Christ will be physically present, ruling in Jerusalem. And the nations will be coming. 
there will be non-believers. Because remember, for a thousand years, uh, people will be on the earth. Everybody who enters into the millennial kingdom at first will be Christians. But as they have children and their children have children and their children are having children, not all of them will come to faith in Christ. Which again is mind-blowing because they can literally go to Jerusalem and see the king seated on the throne. The nations will come before him, but there will be those who will not turn to faith in the Messiah during that thousand years. The scriptures tell us if you die at a hundred years of age during the millennium, you'll thought be accursed because you were so wicked you were, you were taken off the earth. And we go, 100 years, that's, that's a long life. During the millennium, while Christ is here, things will be different. And that will be seen as a short life. Now, previous to this, remember we talked about the rapture. The tribulation occurs before this, as you see on your chart. And at the rapture, all the Christians are taken from the earth. Now, the Bibles are not, the sermons are not. There are people who heard the gospel but didn't respond that will go, oh, no, I missed it. And they will come to faith, and they will go through that uh, tribulation period. This is Daniel 70th 7. And you see in Daniel 9.27, it says, but in the middle of the week, that is three and a half years into this seven-year period, there will be what is called the abomination of desolation. This is where the Antichrist will reveal himself for who he really is. Uh, and he will demand to be worshipped as God. The temple is going to be rebuilt in Jerusalem during the tribulation period. And he will desecrate the temple. And he will demand to be worshipped as God during this time. Now, when these things happen, uh, again, we as believers, I believe the Bible teaches, are not here. We have been saved from the wrath to come. But for those who come to faith during the tribulation, they are going through this horrendous time. And many, many will be martyred during the tribulation period. But at the end of this tribulation period, remember the rapture has occurred. The world will be in chaos because if you uh, conservatively think of billions of people claim to be Christians, if even half of them are true believers, they are taken from the earth. The world will be in chaos. And this is where Satan steps in and he brings order to the world during uh, this period of time. And he takes over, he's leading it, and then this event happens. Well, at the end of the seven years, uh, this is where Israel has been regathered in the, the land of Israel. Christ has not yet returned, but the Jews are regathered there in the land. The temple is rebuilt. They think everything's copacetic. They're going along. And then he reveals himself for who he is. And as he goes after God's people, uh, he will have a special wrath and vengeance for the Jews. And as he is about to wipe out the Jews, this is when the event of the second coming takes place. You've heard about the battle of Armageddon. Uh, it comes from the Hebrew word for mountain is Har. And the plain of Megiddo, so when you hear Har Megiddo, that's Armageddon. And what happens is the armies of the world will be gathered around. They're about to wipe out Israel. And Jesus Christ returns at the second coming and the battle of Armageddon takes place. Flip over to Revelation chapter 19 and look at verses 11 through 21. Because when this is happening, this is what we're reading. And I saw heaven opened. Remember where we are as Christians, we've been caught up to meet the Lord in the air. So we're in heaven. 
We will be part of the armies that return with Christ at this moment. It says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire. Do you remember that from last week? We're speaking of Jesus Christ here. His eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems, crowns. And he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. That's John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Friends, this is us as raptured Christians, included in this number. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, and with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now as you keep reading, look at verse 20. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence. Satan is a counterfeiter. We have the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And Satan sets up an unholy Trinity, the Antichrist or the beast, the false prophet, and Satan, the devil himself. And so there's this trifecta that are uh, deceiving people during the tribulation. And at this point, God takes two of the three, the beast and the false prophet, who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. The lake of fire is what we call hell. And people mistakenly think that Satan runs hell. Have you ever seen the, the red pitchfork guy that's always in the comics being in charge of hell? The devil will be in hell ultimately in judgment himself. Uh, he doesn't run hell. You read Revelation 20.10, it says he too is cast into the lake of fire to suffer judgment. But before we get to Satan being thrown in the lake of fire, we're told in Revelation chapter 20 verse 1 and following, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. Remember the events are happening after the second coming. The battle of Armageddon has taken place. So it says, And I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for what? A thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. So when Christ is reigning physically on the earth, Satan is not having a run of the earth. God puts him in the penalty box, not yet the lake of fire, but a place called the abyss. Now, this isn't purgatory. Uh, purgatory doesn't exist in the scriptures. Uh, but what we're dealing with here is a, a place called the abyss. It's a prison that he is kept in for this thousand-year period. In Revelation 20, verse 4, it says, Then I saw thrones. And they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. These are martyrs because of the testimony of Jesus Christ, because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark with their forehead on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. These are the martyred believers during the tribulation. They didn't receive the mark of the beast, which will be required to buy and sell during the tribulation. 
They are We've all been raptured. The dead in Christ were raptured previously. Others have died during the seven years. They don't miss out on the millennial kingdom. They are given places of authority as well for their faithfulness. It says they come to life and they reign with Christ for a thousand years. Now here again we see this reward of reigning for the thousand years that's mentioned in Revelation 2, 26 through 27. Now those who are against Jesus are described as being like clay pots. And you imagine taking a a metal rod and hitting a clay pot. What's going to happen to it? It's shattered. And so those who stand against Christ are are powerless. They're just shattered uh, by him during this time. When it speaks of the rule of Christ there in Revelation 2.27, the Greek word used is poimenia. It means to shepherd. And so it's not just God here in judgment, but it, it shows him as the great shepherd gathering his sheep, protecting, feeding, leading uh, during this time. Now in Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 9, it says, And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore, and they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Now, remember, during the thousand years, people are being born, and their children are having children, and their children are having children. I told you, many of them may not come to faith in Christ. And what happens with Satan is he is bound in Revelation chapter 20, verses 2 through 3. The the angel throws him into the abyss. He's chained. At the end of the thousand years, Revelation 2, I mean 20, verse 7, says he's released. What does he do? He gathers all the unbelievers on the earth... uh, We think of the Battle of Armageddon as being the climactic battle, but there's a final one called the Battle of Gog and Magog. And then uh, they're defeated. And God says, you know what? I'm done. We're not playing this anymore. And what he does is he throws Satan into the lake of fire. He never gets out of there. Anyone who goes to hell never comes out. And so he will never again deceive. He will never again have any influence over people. And not only is Satan thrown there, but all the unbelievers of the ages have already, uh, will now be judged at the great white throne judgment. God gathers all those who have rebelled against him from the beginning of time, and there is only one destination for them. They join uh, the beast and false prophets, Satan, death, and Hades in the lake of fire, as you see there in Revelation chapter 20, verse 15. Now, What happens? The earth has been corrupted. There's all these things that have happened. So what happens is God will destroy uh, the corrupted world in which we live. You can read in 2 Peter 3, Revelation 20, Isaiah 65 and 66. It says that God will destroy the present earth and heavens, and he will recreate them in perfection, resetting to the beginning of time to the Garden of Eden, Uh, set up. And it will actually be even different because it says there will be no sun and moon. There will not be a need for the heavenly lights because Christ will be the light seated on the throne there in heaven. Again, I encourage you to read these things on your own. The question today, whether you've been able to follow all of this or not, is where will you be when that day comes? When the day comes where time as we know it here on this earth is over, where will you be? Will you be with, in heaven with Jesus Christ? 
or will you be in the place that's called the lake of fire, separated from God for all eternity? The question that determines where you will be is what have you done with the cross of Jesus Christ? Have you accepted him as your savior? Have you recognized that you are a sinner just as I am? And because of that, we owe a penalty of death. And what God calls on us to do is to turn from our sin and to turn to him, accepting that gift of grace. And if you do, God says, you have a place in my family. You have a place with me in heaven for all eternity. For all of us who have made that choice, who have received God, God tells us in verse 28, and I will give him the morning star. In Revelation 22:16, Christ is called the bright morning star. You see, we live in a day and age where many Christians are discouraged. We say the world is, is, is headed to hell. It's controlled by Satan and, and wicked people. Here in America, uh, we dishonor God. We've turned our backs on him. And, and many people say, what is going to happen? Friends, this is what's going to happen. God is still on the throne. God is still in control. And there is a day coming where his long-suffering judgment will finally be poured out. As you read through Revelation 6 and following of the, the bowl, the seal, the trumpet judgments, it talks about those golden bowls being poured out upon the earth. All the prayers you're praying for righteousness and judgment and justice are not lost. They are being stored up and there is a day coming where they will be poured out upon the earth. And so God says, for those who are his, be faithful. Stand firm. Hold on to your faith, and friends, hold on to your forks, because the best indeed is yet to come for those who are believers in Jesus Christ. Will you join me, please, as we close in prayer? Lord God, we thank you for your word, your word which reveals to us who you are. And Lord, the only reason you haven't fully revealed yourself to the earth in judgment yet is because of your patience, because of your love for us, because of your long suffering. Lord God, you are a God of mercy. You are a God of grace, but you are also a holy and just God. And we know a day is coming. A day is coming where you will reveal yourself in judgment and you will make all things right. Lord God, you tell us you're the bright morning star. The bright morning star would appear in the darkest part of the night. And Lord, we're in a dark part of history. And we as believers maybe are, are losing hope. And yet you tell us to hold on to hope because you are the bright morning star. And at the moment when things are the darkest, when things look like they, they just are, are going to go the wrong way, like when Israel is faced by the surrounding nations and they're about to be wiped out, you return, Christ, and you save them. And Lord, we know there is a, a moment in time coming where you will say enough is enough and you will return and you will make all things right. I thank you, Lord, that you loved us enough to come and give your life to save us. And I pray if there's anyone here today who has not yet turned to your son, that this would be the day of salvation, that they would recognize their need for you as their savior and they would turn from their sins into you and they would accept that gift of grace and new life. Father, for the rest of us who know your son, may we live for you. May we be lights in the darkness. May we not lose hope, but may we stand firm, knowing that the best is yet to come for those who are faithful to you. Thank you again, Lord, for your love. Thank you for revealing these truths to us in your word. 
We pray these things in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.